Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Court of Appeals. Uh, we have one case for argument today, and it looks like y'all are ready. Uh, your panel today uh, includes me, uh, Chief Judge Donna Stroud, and uh, to my right, Judge Valerie Zachary, to my left, Judge Allegra Collins. And uh, I think if you already um, determined your rebuttal time and had that reserved yes, for the, okay. Well, we have five minutes, but yes, okay. But you already let him know five minutes, okay? Because yes, we it's, we normally set it for five minutes, but sometimes people want something different. So, just want to check. Okay, all right. We're ready to proceed. May it please the court. My name is Greg Horner. I represent Foothills Temporary Employment. I'd like to reserve five minutes of my time for rebuttal. The defendants asked this court to review the commission's decision to admit Dr. Owen's test causation testimony, to exclude that opinion as insufficient under Rule 702, and to reverse the determination that the death was compensable made by the <laughs> Industrial Commission. There are two subparts to this request. First, was Dr. Owens qualified to render an opinion on whether heat triggered a cardiac arrhythmia in a patient with pre-existing cardiomegaly? And number two, was Dr. Owen's opinion reliable and thus admissible under Rule 702? Notably, we are not asking this court to reweigh the evidence. We are asking this court to exclude evidence. In this case, the question never was the cause of death. The parties and the experts in this case agree on what was the cause of death. The question was whether, while the plaintiff was still living, did heat contribute to the onset of dysrhythmia, which eventually led to the death. Uh, some facts behind the case. Um, this plaintiff was 24 years old. He suffered from an undiagnosed, massively enlarged and fibrotic heart. Uh, he was at high risk of cardiac, sudden cardiac arrhythmia, arrest, and death. Uh, July 29, 2018, he was working in a bakery owned by Bimbo Bakeries. Uh, it was hot in that bakery. We do not dispute that. It was quite hot in that bakery. Do, do you agree that that was an extreme condition? I don't think that 100, 100 to 115, the, the range is, there is a bit of a range there, Judge Zachary. I don't think I would characterize that as extreme conditions in July in North Carolina. Okay. Um, but it was hot. It, clearly, it was, it was very hot in there. Um, and there was no air conditioning, right? That's correct. There was some ventilation bringing in outside air uh, in the area where the plaintiff was working, but there was no air conditioning. But bringing in outside hot air, right? A ambient. I don't know if ambient's the right word, but bringing in yeah. outside air that was not changed in terms of its temperature. But it was July, so it was hot. Correct. Presumably, it was, it was hot. July, <laughs> and I think it was about 7.30 in the evening, so yes, it, it okay. surely would have been hot. Okay. Thank <laughs> you. His shift started about, what, five or? Correct. Very Correct. I think he was three hours into his shift, Hot, Judge. Hottest part of the day. Right. Um, so he, on July 29 of 18, he suffered this, this cardiac arrhythmia at work. Uh, didn't die at work, he died later at the hospital. Um, again, the undisputed cause of death, and I want to be precise here, is dysrhythmia due to cardiomegaly. Um, the medical examiner, examiner who did not testify in the case um, performed an autopsy. He did not mention the heat, heat injury, dehydration. Um, and by statute, at least according to Dr. Owens, the medical examiner would have had access to the ER record in the case had he requested it. We don't know whether he did. That ER record alleged that the heat was in the neighborhood of 115 degrees in that bakery. Um, there is no evidence of heat injury in this case, uh, and to the extent there's any evidence of dehydration, it is very slight. Um, 
We believe the, uh, the Industrial Commission misunderstood the issue as being the cause of death. Uh, it really was not. Um, as a result of that understanding of the issue, we believe the Commission accepted the pathology expert as qualified and reliable. Um, but what they should have asked was this. Was he qualified to opine on the triggering of a cardiac arrhythmia in a living heart? That, we believe, was a subject much more appropriately addressed to a cardiologist uh, rather than a pathologist. And I would, I would just point to a, I would just ask a rhetorical question about this. Um, that is this, if a living person with cardiomegaly was contemplating taking a job in a high heat environment, would he seek that medical guidance from a pathologist? Over my well, objection. Um, <laughs> go, please okay. go ahead. Well, yeah. So, well, first of all, let me ask um, a question about preservation of the issue regarding the qualification of the witness. So, um, when I read these records and briefs, you know, I usually read, you know, the record first. I read the, the industrial commission's opinion, you know, the deputy commissioners, the full commission. And, um, and so, I didn't really, you know, and then so, course I generally have an idea of what the issues are going to be then when I get to the brief um, but I didn't really see any any substantive analysis or anything in the Commission about the qualification of the witness um, and and so in the reply brief uh, notes that it's on page six uh, defendants reiterated their objection to Dr. Owen's testimony on medical causation and renew my objection it says I would just renew the objection here he's not a qualified expert um, so I, I was just trying to find where is it that defendants objected to his qualifications. I understand the arguments about the weight and the credibility evidence if it gets in, but then where is it that the defendants objected to his qualifications as an expert to testify on this topic? I think that's a twofold answer, Your Honor. Number one, he was he was never tendered as an expert in the relevant question, which is the onset of cardiac arrest in a living patient. So we didn't object there because he was never tendered. As to his expertise as a pathologist, um, I, I know the record's a little unclear. It says that I'm inaudible there. I'm inaudible <laughs> because I did not object. Mm -hmm. And the reason I did not object is I, I would stipulate that he's qualified to testify as a pathologist, but the difference is he's not qualified to testify about the onset of cardiac arrhythmia in a living patient which at the end of the day is what he did here. So, but as I said, again, I've, so another part of the, in the reply brief, the next sentence is the full commission understood defendants were challenging his expert testimony based on uh, the field that, and, and like, again, I, in the opinion, I don't see that issue really addressed. So that I'm wondering if the full commission did understand that that was, that the qualification, and again, I understand your argument about he's a, you know, he's a pathologist, he's a cardiologist, you know, all that, but. So in, in my opening, my, the, the, the earliest part of my opening remarks at the full commission oral argument, which of course is the trial venue here, um, I, I stated very specifically that I objected on ad, admissibility, excuse me, I don't know that I use the word admissibility. I use the word qualification uh, for Dr. Owens and reliability. So I addressed both sides of the, the Rule 702 coin, starting with objecting to his lack of qualification to answer the question in, in, that was being asked. Okay. Um, 
I have a question. It seems to me that you rely on Gibbs in your um, opinion. It's supporting, Your Honor. Does it have any precedential value here, given that it's a 2-1 and it's accepted for cert? I don't believe it does, Your Honor. Um, Stowe, I think, is, is, is certainly precedential, or at least very persuasive in the case. Um, and I can, I can talk about Stowe just very briefly. It was an equitable, equitable distribution case. And um, one of the parties tendered a CPA with 30 years of experience to give an opinion in terms of the business valuation mm -hmm. of a, an insurance agency. Uh, interestingly, the CPA had had 10 years of experience owning an insurance agency and had done some, um, some valuation estimates for uh, uh, the purpose of selling or buying an insurance agency in the past, which I would think would be the most relevant reason to evaluate uh, the value of a business. Um, and yet, uh, the court actually disqualified that expert from, from testifying in that case because his, his knowledge was very general as a CPA rather than having had a bunch of continuing education uh, and, a, and a lot of relevant work experience in terms of valuing an insurance agency business. Uh, we think that's highly analogous to the case at hand. Dr. Owens clearly is an expert. Uh, he clearly is a, a, a well-regarded pathologist. Uh, but his expertise is really limited to uh, his examination of, of, and he uses the word patients who are dead, uh, and determining the cause of death. But again, here, we're not talking about a cause of death. We're talking about the cause of the onset of that heart dysrhythmia while this patient was still living. And the diagnosis and, and you know, obviously the treatment of heart conditions in living patients is really more the purview of a cardiologist. And uh, so we're, and, and I, I want to stress that, we're, you know, I'm not asking the court to look at a cardiologist's opinion as, you know, carrying more weight than that of a, a pathologist. What I'm trying to say is the pathologist is simply unqualified uh, to testify about this matter. Um, there are a few, um, a, a few things that I think that, that really weigh on that, and that is, um, you know, yes, he was a pathologist, which of course makes him a medical doctor. He had done over 4,000 autopsies in his career. About 200 of those were sudden cardiac deaths in relatively young, healthy patients like Mr. Connolly. Um, but on cross-examination, I asked this question, and he was able, unable to identify a single autopsy or patient that he had examined who had had, who had died of a cardiac arrest triggered by heat. So, you know, he, he had had no relevant CME. He had been to no seminars. He had done no speaking on this topic. He did no research. He didn't even do any reading before, before his deposition. And so when he comes in and testifies about his 4,000 autopsies, that's well and good. But if none of those autopsies are relevant to the onset of cardiac arrhythmia in a living patient, I don't see how the 4,000 autopsies in the slightest qualifies him to testify in this case. And we don't believe he was so qualified. But then also a death of this sort in such a young person in these circumstances would also be pretty unusual. I mean, for it would be, it's not like there are pathologists out there who have done a whole lot of those, probably. I can't speak to that, Your Honor, I mean, to be honest. Yeah. Well, I mean, actually, we have, we've had cases before this court where someone's um, suffered a sudden cardiac arrest due to extreme heat. Mm -hmm. Or, and, uh, if, you know, in those cases, was the qualified expert a, a cardiologist or a pathologist? There is a, and I, I'm sorry, it's not coming to mind right off the top of my head, but there was a case uh, in the briefs in this, in this matter, and I'll get to the name in a moment, um, but there was a case 
Uh, Madison actually was the case. And, but the, the difference in Madison was number one, Rule 702 wasn't in, in, in force at the time Madison was decided. I can't speak to who the expert was there. Um, what I can say about Madison is that it was not a sudden cardiac death brought about by an arrhythmia, brought about by an enlarged heart. Um, that man had uh, a 95% occluded artery at the exit of his heart. Um, he also had worked in much hotter conditions than we're dealing with in this case. Um, yeah. More, more than, higher than 115 degrees? Yes, Your Honor. It was, it was a hot factory where he worked, but as, as part of that job, and there was, there was talk about violation of safety standards in that job, right. and the reason for that was they were actually working in dryers. This was a case against international paper. They were working in dryers that were 200 degrees. Um, they were so hot that the OSHA inspector who, who went there to inspect actually burned his arm um, on the inside of the machine so that the, the degree of heat was much higher and he did not suffer a, a cardiac arrhythmia. He suffered an actual heart attack. So is it your contention that a pathologist can only testify as to his experience determining the cause of death for that exact condition and it cannot be based on um, any kind of studies or um, you know uh, journals or CME or anything like that. So you're, no, Your Honor, that is that is definitely not our position. What I what I think is that a pathologist in general is testified to to is qualified to testify about the cause of death. Um, but if you're if you extend that to the triggering of a cardiac arrhythmia while that patient is still alive, which really is the question here then the pathologist, you know, his, his direct work experience in general doesn't qualify him to do that. However, you know, if he had gone back and reviewed the voluminous literature that Dr. Guzzo testified was available, if he had gone back and read the studies, if he had gone back and, and studied on this issue, which he admitted he had not, he might have been able to add that to his existing pathology and medical expertise in order to render a reliable opinion, but here he did not do that. So just to put this in, in simple terms, are you saying that a pathologist can't testify that, that extreme heat could trigger this cardiac issue? I think as a general medical practitioner, if he supplemented his knowledge with the recent research, and that recent research supported his opinion that a pathologist could give that opinion, but this it, one did not. So is this something that's only been, only been known recently? Is it the fact that heat might affect? Actually, um, I mean, isn't this something that's been common knowledge for? It is not, Your Honor. For, for, for a long time. It is not, Your Honor. Um, Doctor uh, Doctor Guzzo testified at some length on this on this series of, of questions, and what he said was that the onset of sudden cardiac. I'm just going to call it sudden cardiac arrest so that we can simplify the terms. What he said was that sudden cardiac arrest was completely random. Uh, in terms of the time, manner, and circumstances of its onset. He further testified that the literature shows no established trigger for the sudden cardiac arrest. In other words, essentially, doctors have no way to predict when, where, or if it will ever happen. And so stress from heat or exertion or anything else has nothing to do with when you'll suffer um, a cardiac arrest? I, I'm or, not, or might be at higher risk of suffering a cardiac arrest? I, I think it may, it, it, it may, we may agree that there is an increased risk of suffering a, a wide variety of medical conditions if you work in the heat. I'm not, I'm not going to dispute that. Um, but simply having an association between heat 
and um, cardiac arrest doesn't mean that the heat was the actual cause of the cardiac arrest. And um, I see my time's a little short. I'll jump forward a little bit to a couple of the, the federal cases that I cite in my brief because I think they're apt to your question, Judge. I think I just want to clarify, and the Industrial Commission didn't place much weight or place less weight, correct? Um, is it Dr. Guzman? Is that his name? Uh, Dr. Guzzo, Your Honor, and, and they, they placed greater weight on Dr. Owens than on Dr. Guzzo, but they didn't make any findings that Dr. Guzzo was less than credible. They just, and again, I'm, I'm not asking for a weight assignment. I'm simply pointing to Dr. Guzzo as, as having explained some things that help enlighten the judge's question. Um, and so if you, if you jump forward to um, the, the Lipitor case, it was, was interesting. Lipitor and Cooper, really. Uh, these were federal cases, so they're persuasive for us, but they're applying a rule that North Carolina does apply uh, out of the McGrady case. Um, Lipitor was a diabetes case. These plaintiffs claimed that they had diabetes that came along after they took Lipitor. Um, and this may be the most important case today because um, the experts were excluded in that case because alternative causes were not analyzed and ruled out. So what the experts said was there's associational studies showing an association between the Lipitor use and the onset of diabetes, at least in some doses. The study showed that at 20, 40, and 80 milligrams, but not at 10. Um, so this association between Lipitor and diabetes was, was known to the court. Um, as to this court, the, you know, the, the fact that heat is a stressor on the body is, is certainly known to all of us and admitted by, I think, all parties in this case. But in that case, um, the expert's opinion was excluded because they failed to rule out other obvious possible causes, in that case, diabetes, or I'm sorry, obesity as the cause of diabetes. Um, and what the court said was the doctor must provide a reasonable explanation as to why they concluded that any alternative cause suggested by the defense was not the sole cause. Um, is the causation a little different in a workers' comp case than in a traditional tort case? I, I don't think we're trying to test causation, Judge. I think what we're trying to test is the admissibility of the evidence and the analysis under Rule 702? Well, I think in that case, they're talking about the fact that obviously um, diabetes could be caused by many things. Right. Um, and here, it's like, is this a contributing factor to him having this arrhythmia at this time? I think that that is, I think that, Judge, that leaves us with two prongs to essentially a differential diagnosis, which was the, case, the, the issue in Lipitor. Um, did the heart simply go into arrest on its own with the sole cause being the cardiomegaly, or did the heat contribute? And I think in order for the doctor's testimony to be reliable, he's got to testify and rule out the cardiomegaly as the sole cause, just as was the case in, in the Lipitor case. And really, you know, Dr. Owens in this case didn't give us any kind of explanation as to why it wasn't just the cardiomegaly that caused this, this cardiac arrest. And again, going back to, to Dr. Guzzo, who again testified that the onset of, and this is a man with 20 years of experience as a cardiologist, had recently um, recertified as a cardiologist. He keeps up with a large volume of research on, you know, in the field. He is very knowledgeable about the onset of, of cardiac arrest, and his testimony was it is completely random. I, I have a question about the calculation of wages, if you're ready to. Sure. I mean, I don't know if, if you're ready. My to time is short, so I'm, I'm happy okay. to move along. Um, how do you respond to plaintiff's argument that the, the, that the full, full commission used the one date that is known to be incorrect 
right. which was um, January, July 29th. I don't think the commission found that he was going to leave July 29th. I think they used that date because that was the last date wage, wages were paid. They found that he was going to quit in August. And then, granted, they used the broad term August. They, they don't know when he was going to quit in August. Mm -hmm. um, I, think we get some, uh, I think we get some evidence uh, from other parts of the case. For instance, um, you know, uh, of course, he, he had gone to Shaw University. The last two years he was at Shaw, he had worked summer jobs from roughly mid-May until early August. I think one job he quit August 1st, the other he quit August 7th. Um, so why would, you, why would July 29th be the most fair date? I think it's the most, well, frankly, it gives the highest weekly wage calculation, Your Honor. Um, if, you, if you cut off the date as of July 29th, um, it yields a higher weekly wage than if you extend that date a week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, unless he was making higher wages during that period of time. Mm -hmm. So I, I think the date is really not relevant here because, um, you know, after Joyner and Tedder and, and the other cases, which I'll, I'll talk about just a little bit, um, I think that the court or the commission had to divide by 52 in this case, um, as was done in those other cases. So a really brief review of the evidence, um, you know, his, his two years he worked those summer jobs. As he was leaving or as he was taking the job at Foothills, he cited as his reason for leaving going back to school. Uh, in those other two jobs. Uh, and then there, of course, there is the Facebook post, which is, is tragic, but it is relevant on the weekly wage calculation, and I'll quote that. I'm so glad school starts in August, so I don't have much longer in the bakery. LOL, period, unquote. Can you tell me whose burden is it to show that he would not have continued on there indefinitely, at least? Is that plaintiff's or defendant's burden to show that this was temporary or? or Your Honor, it's, it's plaintiff's burden to prove every element of their case. And as a result, it is their burden to prove the average weekly wage in every sub-element of it. Okay. Um, but I think regardless of the burden of proof, we have shown um, that this man was going to quit in August of 2018. Um, and I can, I can summarize a little bit of the additional evidence, if you like. No, I just am curious, is there, is there a presumption that, that this is, would be a permanent position, or is there no presumption at all? It is just purely um, plaintiff's burden to show how long he would stay. There is no presumption, Your Honor. Um, the only thing I can point to is general state law outside the record, which is that this is an at-will employment state. Um, and of course, this was an at-will employment relationship, which is in the record. Um, and I'll address that just very briefly. That, that doesn't connote permanency at all. Uh, you know, at-will means either party can quit at any time for almost any reason. Um, and they can do so without notice. They've, they've also pointed to a lack of a two-week notice here. Um, again, that does not connote permanency. Uh, frankly, in order to really understand the lack of notice here, you would have to know what day Mississippi College started classes. That's not in the record. Uh, and accordingly, we don't know whether he was within two weeks of starting classes or not. So the fact that he gave notice really is not relevant to the case. Okay, and there's a lot of discussion about the fact that you can be at school online. Um, is that, is that plaintiff's burden to show that this was an online course he was taking, or is that your burden to rebut? I think it's his burden to show that, Your Honor. And the, the, you know, the, the you know the interesting thing is, you know, the mother, the father, and the sister all testified in this case, and none of them testified about his intentions in terms of going back to school, whether it be in Mississippi or North Carolina. None of them testified about his intentions in terms of um, um, doing online classes. There's nothing in the record that Mississippi College even offers online classes. Um, what is in the record? 
is the evidence of the Facebook post that he was quitting the bakery in the month of August and that he was quitting the bakery to go to school. Um, you know, if he was going to be quitting the bakery to go to another job, and we addressed the syntax issue in our brief, if that was what he was doing, he would have said that in the Facebook post. He wouldn't have said, I'm quitting the bakery to go to school. He would have said, I'm quitting the bakery to go work at X assembly line or, or some such thing. But would that's you, not what he did. Would you consider that habit evidence, or would you consider that merely just relevant evidence? I think it's relevant evidence under Rule 404. More importantly, I think it was that evidence was stipulated by the plaintiff uh, and never objected to. Um, so I, I don't think he gets to object to it now. Uh, but clearly, um, it, it, is, it is under Rule 404 admissible evidence, not of habit, but of plan or intention. Um, you know, his, his very obvious plan, um, according to all the actual evidence that's in the record, as opposed to the suppositions of plaintiff's counsel, was that he was going to quit school uh, or quit the bakery and go back to school. Um, Can you just address the argument that, that quitting the bakery is not the same thing as quitting the temp agency? I think the Facebook post addresses that pretty well because in the Facebook post he links the idea of quitting the bakery with the idea of returning to school. Um, so it, it shows obviously the intent to <coughs> quit the bakery, but why? It's to go back to school. Had he found another job, I, I, it's a little hard to argue outside the record on that, but presumably he would have posted, hey, I found a new job, I'm leaving the bakery. Or he might say, um, you know, I'm going to move. He could have said any one of a number of things, but at the end of the day, he joined the idea of quitting the bakery with the idea of going to school. And we think that shows the intention to go to school very, very clearly. And there's nothing to rebut it. And I think that's the most important thing, Your Honor, is that the, the plaintiff didn't introduce any solid evidence from any of the family members that he was going to be staying in North Carolina, keeping the job, going to school online or anything of the, of the sort. Um, and as such, I think that the Industrial Commission's factual finding that this was seasonal employment or temporary employment was supported by the evidence of record, and I, I think it's, um, it's a finding of fact that cannot be overturned because it is supported by competent evidence. Um, I see I'm within my five minutes, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring this to a close. Uh, judges, there are two things that um, the defendants ask of this court today. Number one is that they reversed the Industrial Commission's finding of compensability for two reasons. Number one, Dr. Rowan's opinion was not reliable. Number two, he was not qualified to give that opinion about a living patient. In the alternative, if the commission does not overrule the commission, I'm sorry, if the court doesn't overrule the commission's compensability finding, we would ask that you affirm their findings in terms of the average weekly wage. Thank you. Chief Judge Stroud, Judge Zachary, Judge Collins, um, may it please the court. I am Christian Ayers, uh, seated at the table is Ian Matthew Hobbs, and we represent uh, next of kin of Maurice Connolly in this case. We are asking the court today to recognize an error of law committed by the Industrial Commission when the Industrial Commission bypassed the statutorily preferred third method of calculating average weekly wage. Uh, in favor of the fifth method of calculating average weekly wage, which is to be used for exceptional reasons. The first error of law is that the statute sets forward a priority. 
the first applicable method is the default, if you will, subject to things that modify it, such as a finding that is clearly unfair or in the fifth method in the statute clarifies that there are exceptional reasons to skip the statutorily preferred method. Um, the Lyles case, dating back to the 1950s, Supreme Court case uh, here in North Carolina, gives helpful discussion as to why the third method is preferred. It relies on the employee's actual earnings. Um, though some later case law has modified this a little bit, the Lyles case is very focused on applying that employee's actual earnings, not his capacity to earn. Um, the question in that case was a student that died and um, had, they, the Industrial Commission had surpassed the third method and applied the fourth method. They, they found that was inappropriate. The preference is to rely on the actual wages as stated in the third method. So tied in with that error of the Industrial Commission was what, what happens <laughs> if no party does anything? If the evidence of record is just the 10 weeks of earnings, the actual earnings that we have, um, and no one puts any evidence of, of unfairness, uh, that would be the default then. It's clear from the statute that fairness is judged party, party by party. Fairness to the employer or fairness to the employee. Um, the second error of law that the Industrial Commission committed here is that they did not actually apply the correct legal principle to determining what was fair for the employer here. Uh, in the conclusions, there's no application of asking what is fair for the employer. Uh, the case law in Barnhart, it's an old case, kind of does a lot to explain why we have average weekly wages to begin with. Uh, the courts say that it makes sense putting the burden of the injured employee on the employer that they would link that burden to the average weekly wages paid. Um, this accomplishes a few things. It allows the employer to plan. Um, it allows them to insure themselves appropriately. And so um, when the, the question I believe posed by this case was, as it relates to the employer thinking about fairness, are the benefits commensurate with the amount insured? Uh, did the employer plan for a full-term employee? Did they insure a full-term employee? If they did, then applying the third method, paying Mr. Connolly as if he was a full-term employee, is not unfair to the employer. They received the premiums for it. They planned for it. Um, the, the record is clear. There was no evidence that they intended to fire Mr. Connolly. In fact, at the time he died, he was being trained to work in a few different areas for that employer. He had just received a 15% raise not two weeks ago uh, before his death. Um, and the, the error uh, is illustrated by the Industrial Commission here is they applied a different definition to foothills in, in looking at the fairness. They said, well, uh, they're gonna have to pay Mr. Connolly as if he's a full-term employee under the third method. Um, but that's gonna cost them more than if uh, they paid him as a short-term employee. Um, so that is unfair. Uh, that's not how the Industrial Commission uh, exactly worded it, but that was the upshot. And defendants have, have argued 
Essentially, Mr. Connolly should have been viewed as a short-term employee, employed for 10 weeks. Uh, no one was going to do the job um, after that point. And that result achieved by the Industrial Commission is actually clearly unfair to the employer because they are planning for and ensuring a full-term employee and yet paying benefits out on a short-term employee. It's a windfall to the insurance company. Um, and, and as we argue, a great detriment to Mr. Connolly's family. Um, so I, I don't think, number one, uh, the error was they should not have bypassed the third method. I, I'm going to stop. So you're saying that the insurance company received a premium for a full year for, uh, for this employee? That, that's correct, Your Honor. I, so if they receive a premium for a full year, is that premium the same amount that they're going to pay out in benefits? Or is that premium a smaller amount? It, it, you're right. It is a smaller amount than what they would pay out in benefits. But in looking at the Barnhart case, at least as I read it, uh, the concern was, and, and perhaps it would be useful to quote the exact language, but um, that the benefit uh, is commensurate with what's being paid out. And, and it says here whether an employer pays this benefit directly or indirectly uh, to combine plaintiff's wages from two employments would not be fair to the employer. The, the concern is if employers are going to insure themselves, they uh, should only have to insure themselves for their own risk, not for an another employer's risk, basing it on the actual earnings of the employee. So again, I think to answer your question, Judge Collins, it, I think it's helpful to look at what the Industrial Commission did here, which was the third method is going to require us to treat him as a full-term employee. They're going to end up paying out a lot of money. And, and that's unfair because they would pay out less money if he was a short-term employee. If that were the definition of fairness with regard to the employer, you, I, I can envision an unlimited amount of circumstances where the commission could find a method that would pay less to the employee and keep more money in the insurance pockets. If that were the definition, just purely the money paid out in every case, the commission could jump over the third method and say, I found another method that results in the insurance company paying out less. But there's some very helpful language uh, for this court in Nay, um, Navy Cornerstone, 273 NT App 135, uh, the Court of Appeals opinion, which was modified um, and affirmed, but it was only modified with regard to the standard of review. In that case, and I think this answers your question as well, Nay was in the employee of Cornerstone, a temporary agency, at the time of his back injury. Whether he would have later transitioned to field builders or another employer is irrelevant. Um, in considering, and I'll come back to that because that's a very important point with regard to fairness for Mr. Connolly, but in considering whether method three would be fair, the lack of definite employment end date for Nay was very important to the court. Um, 
the fact that a calculation of Nay's average weekly wages according to method three produces wages to Nay that exceed Cornerstone's typical long-term payments to employees. So we're talking about the money factor here that you're raising. Um, the insured amount is less than uh, what they're paying out. Yes, the premium payments are less, but they are insured for that amount. Um, it does not make method three unfair. Okay, so, but in that case, there wasn't any evidence of end date, correct? And in this case, we have at least some evidence that this was not a temporary employment situation in the sense of with a temp agency that could go on indefinitely. Uh, Your Honor, I, I will address the, the fact that we argue there was no competent evidence to support that finding in this case, but in nay, there actually was some evidence that that employment would not continue. Um, Nay considered a temp to perm arrangement, which is where a temporary employee plans on, and, and the employer actually plans on, that employee going in full time, full term, with field builders in this case, but another employer. And this court, I think appropriately, very correctly, um, said that in applying the third method, it's irrelevant whether he would have later transitioned to field builders. Again, that was the intent. Everyone intended for him to go to field builders, which would be off the risk for this employer or another employer. That's irrelevant. Um, what this court, for fairness to the employer, needs to assure is that if they are planning for a full-term employee, if they are insuring someone as a full-term employee, then it is fair to pay them under method three as a full-term employee. Does that answer your question, Your Honor? Yes. Okay, thank you. Um, so it kind of tied into this, and I'll try to separate it out, but it all kind of comes together, is the fairness to Mr. Connolly. Um, we don't think the commission should have gone this far to consider fairness to Mr. Connolly in that, again, the default is the third method, there being no way to prove that it's unfair to the employer under the Barnhart definition. I'll call the, that definition the Barnhart definition for making sure the benefits are commensurate with the insured amount. The industrial commission shouldn't have gone any further. But the way they looked at Mr. Connolly uh, still reveals that they did not attempt to approximate the actual earnings he would have in this employer of injury. Um, it was mentioned earlier that the Industrial Commission terminated Mr. Connolly's earnings as of July 29th, the day he died. The upshot of that decision is that Mr. Connolly would have had no further earnings into August. Um, and it implies that the relationship between the employer and the employee would have terminated as of that date. Um, we know that's not correct. Uh, Mr. Connolly died. He had not intended to, uh, you know, he hadn't told anyone, oh, I'm not going to be in tomorrow, I'm, I'm gone. Um, he was being trained to work in a few different areas. He had just received a raise. The evidence of record is that he, uh, the employer continued to plan to employ him 
uh, and that he was going to continue to be employed. The Industrial Commission's findings elsewhere, page 74 of the record, show that they, they really thought Mr. Connolly was going to leave in a couple of weeks or in August. Those findings, as pointed out in the brief, are inconsistent with the finding that July 29th was the day his earnings were going to end. How would that change his average weekly wage? If you make $10 in one week or $20 in two weeks, don't you still have the same weekly wage? So, Your Honor, if he had continued to earn wages through the end of August. So then we would count all those wages through the end of August, and you would also, if we did the fifth method, divide by? 52. For the fifth method, uh, under the hypothetical you're saying, you would take his wages through the end of August, which can be presumed given that he was earning $549 a week on average. Um, he had just gotten that raise, so it would have gone a little higher. He would have earned a total of $8,000 through the end of August. But you would divide then by a, a more weeks, correct? Because he would have worked more weeks through August. So did you still come up with the same weekly wage? If the correct method had been used, the third method, yes. If the Industrial Commission had applied the third method. So if, but if you find that he's worked through the end of August, but divide by 52, then you come up. It, it would be a figure that's 150% of what the Industrial Commission found. Okay. Um, $165 a week instead of 95, I believe. I may not have the numbers exact. Um, but my point in bringing this up is that the goal is to approximate the actual earnings of the employee. And I cited the definition of approximation. The idea is to, to be accurate, or if not totally accurate, as close to accurate as possible. And the discussion we just had, Judge Collins, shows the Industrial Commission did not achieve that here. Um, they clearly selected the wrong date. I think it's useful to think, well, how, how close did they get? A few weeks. Uh, or August, and then and then you say his earnings are cut off as of July 29th is, is not that close. We're talking about an additional 50% in earnings um, if you apply the fifth method. Um, if we determine that, that July 29th is the incorrect date, the 52 weeks is the correct number of weeks to divide by, but July 29th is the incorrect end date, do we send it back for more findings? Do I, we make it on the record? I think in that case, Judge Collins, if you were to do that, uh, it would require remand um, for additional findings in conformance with the facts of the record. Um, we are asking this court to actually reverse and remand uh, for the legal reasons. Um, and and <clears throat> that, this brings me nicely to my point. Well, what would fulfill the spirit of the act, approximating his actual wages. Um, as, as Lyles and a host of cases have said since then, we want to find out what his actual wages are. Um, number one, the legal preference is for the third method. Lyles does a good job of explaining why that's preferred. Um, there was a lot of discussion in defendant's brief about Tedder. This case is distinguishable from Tedder, and, and again, I'm, I'm relying on this court in May for a lot of this information where they appropriately recognized that Tedder had a definite end date. Um, there was an exceptional reason. The employer 
the insurance company, and the employee all planned for seven weeks of employment. It was on everyone's radar. And in that case, where the employer, the insurance company planned for a short-term employee, uh, the employee even is aware that he's been hired for seven weeks, short-term employment. Um, to apply method three, which would presume a full-term employee would be unfair. Um, that's an exceptional reason. Here, I've already discussed why it's not unfair to, for the employer who has insured a full-term employee to uh, pay benefits as if Mr. Connell is a full-term employee. But the third method, also as a nay, um, it, it gets the closest. It approximates his actual wages. Um, in considering whether method three calculation of Nay's average weekly wages would be fair, the lack of a definite end date for Nay with Cornerstone is important. Um, although the goal was for Nay to obtain full-time employment with field builders, this was not guaranteed and did not occur. Calculating Nay's average weekly wages according to what he actually earned, I'm sorry, I should not have said actually, it says according to what he earned from Cornerstone, over the number of weeks he worked for the staffing agency fairly approximates what he would have earned but for the injury. A, a common theme through all of these cases, Barnhart, Tedder, Nay, um, the third method, there's a reason why it's preferred by the statute. It's the most accurate. It imitates the actual age wages. But if you in this case, where the, where the full commission found that he was basically a summer employee, um, would it be fair at that point for the full commission to then order um, payment of uh, 19000 a year? It, Your Honor, I, I think it, it comes back to uh, the employer planning for a full-term employee and having to pay out benefits as if he was a full-term employee. If the Industrial Commission found that he was a short-term employee, the question is still, did someone make it an issue? Did someone prove that it was unfair to them? Nay kind of uses some language here that I think can be surmised as, um, just because something might be more fair, uh, and in Nay, I think the indication was it's gonna result in the employer paying less benefits, um, does not make the third method unfair in this case. Um, the actual language was, um, I've, I've lost it, but the language is uh, that just because there's another method that might be, where, whether fifth method could create a calculation of Nay's average wages that is more fair than method three, such as calculating Nay's chances of obtaining full-time employment with field builders or another client of Cornerstone, does not determine whether method three is fair. So, I, I think to answer your question, even in light of that finding, the law would still dictate the third method, the preferred method, being applied. Turning to a, a separate point you raised, though, we do firmly believe there was not competent evidence to find that Mr. Connolly was a short-term employee. Um, one of the, 
thing cited in the brief is, is this idea that uh, if one is in school that they cannot work. I, I believe I'm not the only one alone and having worked pretty consistently since I was 16. Working while in school is, is common <laughs> practice. Uh, night classes exist. Um, Aren't you asking us to speculate though? There was plenty, uh, there were plenty of witnesses and plenty of opportunity as plaintiff to show that this was going to be an online program or a night program or a local program and we have nothing of that. Isn't that your burden as the plaintiff to put that in? No, Your Honor, it, it was not our burden in that the employer had to prove that it was unfair to surpass the default method, method three, the statutorily provided method. Um, so if no one did anything, the third method should have applied. Um, you know, assuming that we failed to meet a burden here, Your Honor, the third method still should have applied in the absence of proof that it was unfair to the employer specifically. Um, but the, uh, the idea of um, someone being in school or not uh, excluding work is a unique question to ask in this case because we have someone who's dead. And uh, I cited Pickerel, it's an unrelated case, but it, it addresses the fact that there is a difference in cases when someone is dead. The employer is often in the better position to answer questions of causation, that's Pickerel. Um, here, the person that could have answered that question, uh, whether he was gonna work uh, or go to school and not work is, is now silenced totally. We don't know how close he was with his family. Not every family is close. Um, the, uh, if you review the record, the reason the family was, was brought up anyways was to uh, just show relation. Um, can, I, can I stop you for a minute? Because I'm still, I'm still struggling with burden because it's really important in this case. Yes. So as the plaintiff, you had the burden of showing, from what I understand from counsel, every piece of your claim, correct? That is correct. Okay, so does that mean that you had the burden of, in the first instance of showing that this was, or at least could be considered, not temporary, but permanent? You, your Honor, um, I think it might be helpful to look at the statute. I apologize for my copy here. Um, but the um, but the statute lays out what's supposed to happen in this situation, and um, it, it goes in order priority. The Conyers case um, is this upside down for you? Mm -mm. Okay, good. Um, and, and this is the method we're talking about, the third method, where the employment prior to the injury extended over a period of fewer than 52 weeks. The method of dividing earnings during that period, a number of weeks, and parts thereof, um, shall be followed. So, in the absence of a party doing anything, particularly if a party views this to be the fairest method, which next of kin did, this is the method to apply, provided right. results fair and just to both parties or thereby be obtained. We contend it's fair for Mr. Connolly. Um, it approximates what he would actually do. <coughs> so 
essentially, in, in defendants saying, oh, this is uh, the burden of proof for plaintiffs, um, it would be, I suppose, it would be A-plus students' work to, to go ahead and put that proof in there anyways. But the statute, especially given the order of priority, says this is the method that shall be followed. And, and so if the employer thought this was unfair, it is certainly not plaintiff's burden to prove that it was unfair. Um, the employer needed to come forward with that evidence. Uh, the exceptional reasons that are cited there in um, method five. So in three, would you, would you say that the fact that it says provided results fair and just to both parties will thereby be obtained, it's your burden to show that it was fair to both parties? I, I don't believe so, Your Honor. I, I, I believe that the third method, particularly in light of Lyles, which says we rely on the actual earnings, um, in Nay, where it, it says we, we want to look at what actually happened, um, what their plans were in the future were irrelevant, the default here uh, is that the third method would apply. Now, if the employer had raised this as an issue and, and said, oh, well, um, it, you know, there's no way it can apply because of this, that, or the other, maybe uh, there would be some rebuttal evidence, but um, the default is the third method. It's the preferred method. Would an exceptional reason be that he was a temporary employee? No, no, Your Honor. I think this court in A makes that very clear that um, it is fair to play a per pay a person that's in temporary employment as a full-term employee because it's irrelevant whether they would have later transitioned to a different employer. Um, I'm citing to this court's opinion at, at page um, 143, uh, a little ways down. Um, the, really the departure from the case law, if there was one, um, came about in a very unique set of, of circumstances, and that was Tedder, where every single party planned. They knew this was going to be a seven-week short-term employee. Um, in that case, everyone's on board. It's unfair to the employer because they planned for a seven-week employee. It's unfair to the employee 